Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. You turn your Bibles to James chapter 1. We finished James 1 tonight in a study that I've entitled The Gifts of God's Word. James 1 is so filled with meat. We're now in our fifth study here in the first chapter as we wrap up chapter 1. And as you think on the remainder of this chapter, in it are some of the most famous verses found in the book of James. They're impactful, they're meaningful, they'll change your life, they'll change your marriage, they'll change the way you parent, they'll change the way you live your life in this world. And when you actually understand that the context is found here, uh, that every good and every perfect gift is from above, and then in verse 18 we find that that gift really is brought forth by the word of truth, the issue is the word. How does the word affect our lives? And so as we finish up here in chapter one, uh, this is one of those times where you're going to probably burn up some ink, taking some notes. You should underline and highlight um, because here are some principles for us in our daily living that you can virtually apply uh, almost every single day Uh, while you're on this earth. And so would you pray with me? And we'll pick up here in verse 17 as we'll actually finish the chapter all the way through verse 27. So Father, we thank you. We ask that you would speak to us now through your majestic, your mighty, your marvelous word. Lord, change our lives, change the direction and trajectory of the way we live. And use this time, Lord, for your purposes and for your glory Whether we're here in the sanctuary or watching online somewhere in the world, Lord, we pray uh, that you would use your word to change us. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 17, every good gift. Every good gift. Absolutely everything is good. The Bible plainly declares that God is actually the only truly good being in the universe. That God himself is both the giver of good gifts and he is the one who is good. So the good God gives good gifts. And as he does so, he does so with liberality. He's not sparing. If we ask of him, he will give us wisdom. Wisdom's a gift. It is a gift that's found in God's word, as we've already seen. And every perfect gift, in other words, when God gives us gifts, They are perfect. It's interesting because that word means complete or completed, but perfect in the sense that it's being used here is God will only give you gifts that are perfect, perfect in their goodness for you. And here's why that is important. Because God does not give every gift to everybody because every gift is not a perfect gift for you. When people come and they say, well, why hasn't God blessed me with money? Or why hasn't God blessed me with this house? Or why hasn't God done these certain things in my life? 
The answer is God knows exactly what gifts are perfect for you, both spiritually and provisionally. So whether they're a spiritual gift as God gives them to you, he wants to give you as many as are good for you personally. He would give you all of them as you use them, but he gives only good gifts that are perfect for you. So that means you're probably not going to receive all the gifts that maybe someone else has. But you may well receive gifts that they don't have. You might have the gift of mercy. And maybe they're not the most merciful person. Maybe you have the gift of service or the gift of helps. And the other person has the gift of administration when we're talking about spiritual gifts. You may have gifts that they don't have and vice versa. But the gifts you do have are hand-selected by God for you. Some people have the gift of compassion. Some people have the, the gift of exhortation. That's not a gift that a lot of people want to have, but it's an important gift. God gives perfectly those gifts to those whom he decides in his goodness to give them to. And those gifts are from above and come down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation nor shadow of turning. In other words, there is no time at which God is not perfectly illuminating truth. He has no shadows in his being. There's nothing about him that edges towards what we would call the darkness of sin. There, there isn't anything in God's character that isn't the brightness of his appearing, the glory of who he is. So in that sense, not only is God a good God who gives good gifts, he's incapable of doing absolutely anything else. He is eternally good. He is the father of lights. He's the illuminator of all things that are good. And of his own will... He brought us forth, and here it comes, by the word of truth. Faith comes by hearing. Paul wrote to the church at Rome in chapter 10, verse 17. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So the reference here is actually the word of truth is also the word of God. It's the full counsel of what God would say to us. That we might be the kind, or a kind, of the first fruits of his creatures. And so first we see the, the character, really, of the gifts themselves. Where do they come from? Jesus actually spoke to this on the sermon on the, in the Sermon on the Mount as he talked about gifts themselves. And if you remember, as he kind of concludes that sermon, what man is there in Matthew chapter 7, verses 9 through 11, what man is there of you of whom, if his son asked for bread, he gives him a stone? Or if he asked for a fish, he would give him a serpent. And if you then, being evil, you know, sometimes people debate with me whether man is inherently good or inherently evil. Mankind is inherently evil. You may not like to hear that, but mankind is inherently evil. That does not mean we're completely evil. That does not mean that we can't do good things. But at the core of every human being, 
there is a level of Adamic evil. We were born with the sin nature that evil resides in us. That's why Jesus said, the Son of Man did not come into the world to condemn the world. The world through sin was already condemned. Man, at his core, is not intrinsically good. Every single heart, there's none righteous, not one. And again, don't take that too far, but it helps in our understanding of why the Bible says what it says. Because if there were any truly good people, good as God is good, they wouldn't need a Savior. But all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. So in that sense, every single person has the same problem. Now, your evil may not be the same as mine and mine not the same as yours, but the fact of the matter is, Jesus was speaking truth when he said, if you then, speaking generally of mankind, are being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask of him? This is the the balance between what human beings are by nature and what God is by nature. God is by nature good, and mankind by its nature, our nature, collectively, in a general sense, is evil. So when people say, no, man, mankind's getting better, mankind by itself is incapable of getting better in that sense. That's why the world's going the direction it's going. You want the proof of that? We have more ways to kill one another than have ever existed in the course of human history. More people die from poverty today than they did during the Middle Ages. Think of these things. We're an advanced society. We have all these wonderful medications and things that we can take to preserve our life. And yet at the same time, more people die from sickness than have ever died in human history. Now we die from cardiac disease. We die from diabetes. We actually die from indulging in things that will kill us because internally we have a problem with sin. So we don't resist Twinkies. We, we have very little capacity to not please ourselves apart from Christ. And so people without Christ do what you would expect them to do. They take those good things and they abuse them. And so... The picture here is the character of the gifts themselves. They're from above. If it's good, it's from above. If it's not, it's from here. And if you remember, in that same sermon, Jesus said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So he drew the distinction between that which is normal in us and that which we should have because God, the giver of all gifts, is good. Notice the character now of the giver. God is completely incapable of being something other than what he is. In that sense, he's unchangeable. He's the father of lights. He never changes And if you look at the very first thing that the Bible says about anything, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. 
And then God said, light be. And light was. Before that, the universe as we know it was darkness. And darkness in its truest sense is most easily understood is the absence of light. Light is energy. And so if you look at what God did, he took a void, something that was completely without anything, utter darkness, and he interjected into it light, which is also the source of life. Without light, there's no life. And so God is the father of lights, not just the heavens, but he's the father of everything that energizes the universe that we live in. He's the creator of heaven and earth. So the giver of gifts is saying, look, when I said let light be, that's because I interjected myself into the creation. Because God is light. He actually dwells in unapproachable light. Jesus was the light of the world, amen? So he's always associated himself with the ability to be this father that is the father of lights. Isn't it interesting that the first world religions that we're aware of, those that are recorded, for instance, the Egyptians, you know what their principal god is? It's Ra, the sun god. And the Pharaoh was the living manifestation of the sun. And they knew that the sun was the source of light. And so they actually, in that sense, worshipped whom they associated with the actual real God. Because God declared about himself, I am light and in me is no shadow of turning. They were actually on the right path, except notice what they did they put themselves in the driver's seat. They said, well, this whole supreme being thing, we want a person to be that. That's the source of our problem. We are selfish by nature. And so God says, look, I am the giver of these gifts. In fact, David so knew this that when he penned the 19th Psalm, he said, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. There's no speech, there's no language in which their voice is not heard. You see, at that time, we hadn't invented radio telescopes. We didn't know that the stars actually do sing. But David, through his connection to the Lord, was given information that we wouldn't get for another 3,500 years, roughly. And so here we have the Bible telling us that God actually is who he says he is. And in fact, the stars of heaven, one might say, and it has been said before, the stars, the the sky that we look up and view might well be the oldest testimony of the Lord. It's the one thing that Adam and Eve surely could have seen. The creation itself. That's why Romans 1 says that, In the creation, 
God is manifest so that we are without excuse. In other words, God bears witness of himself, and in that witness, he doesn't change. Tonight's the first meteor shower, so if you look over roughly in the eastern quadrant of the sky, you're going you're gonna to see uh, the best meteor shower. We'll even be able to see it here in L.A. for the first time in a long time, more than likely about 10.30 tonight. God bears witness of himself. Do any of you worry about the sun coming up every day? You go to bed, man, I hope the sun comes up. No, you don't. And when you go out in the evening, when you can see the stars, so if you head to the eastern Sierras and there's no clouds and it's a beautiful night, you can look up and see the Milky Way. Those stars have been burning for a long time. They haven't changed. And like that, God says, I am unchangeable. I'm the unchanging one. And so when Jesus came and he spoke there in John 8, verse 12, one of the I am statements, he said, I am the light of the world. And he that follows me shall not walk in, here's that same thought, darkness, but shall have the light of life. So God intended for us to understand that he is unchangeable, and that he himself is the light of the world. And he even does that with the creation. So when you walk outside and you look up, it's like, hmm, those are the same stars that are always there. Now the earth rotates, and of course the scenery changes, but it comes back around throughout the solar cycle. And in that specific date, every year, you're going to find, you know, all the planets on the ecliptic. You'll look out there, yeah, there goes Mars and Venus and Saturn, and there's Uranus over there. No, we can't see that. It's dark. God is unchangeable. Church, you believe in an unchangeable God? Because if you do, then he's always been right. And he will never be wrong. And what he has said in his word will always be true. And that's the direction the remainder of this passage goes. Because what he's trying to say is in the character of who he is, you don't have to worry about there being little shadows in his character. You don't have to worry about something being right one day and wrong the next. In other words, God changing his mind on something. God is intrinsically, inherently good, and he never changes. So you can trust him in his goodness. You can rest in his goodness. That's why when you have his grace and his mercy, the outpouring of that should be a welling up of goodness in your soul because the good God has given good gifts. Those good gifts are not retractable. He will not snatch them from you. He's not going to love you one day and unlove you the next. And so the remainder of this chapter brings forth the depth of these truths. Notice that the word is a gift that brings life. And of his own will, verse 18 says, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be the first fruits of his creation or his creatures. 
In other words, the first one that was born again was the first of a new kind. Because in Adam all die. But in Christ all live. That's a new kind of people who are born into the light. In other words, they've received the light of the world. They're walking in that light. And in him is no darkness, no shadow of turning. So the people of God walk in the light of God. That's what that new life is that you have. It's one of the things that often we we have to talk about with people. You know, sometimes people will say, well, you know, the... This will help that person or that will, and those things can be useful. You might be talking about a program or some type of book that they could read or some type of counsel that they could get. All those things can be very, very helpful. But the fact of the matter is, unless there's an internal change of heart, the victory over sin is virtually impossible, and it is completely impossible in an eternal sense. You'll have ups and downs, you'll have some victories, you'll have some days where you know, okay, well, I had, you know, some success fighting that. But because men are intrinsically evil and only God is intrinsically good, unless you know the intrinsically good God personally, you don't have any possibility of overcoming your intrinsically evil nature. That takes an intervention of the intrinsically good God. So when God places in you a new heart and begins in you a renewing of your mind, that starts that journey where you're now walking more in the light than you were in the darkness. We call that thing salvation, which is the beginning of our sanctification. And notice it says, of the will of God. You realize that from the beginning, it was God's will to save mankind. It was never not God's plan to save us. That began in the beginning. Just as soon as the creation uh, was realized, there was a need for the plan. And that plan has always been for the light of the world to enter your heart and for you to be saved and redeemed. When God, as three persons, decided to act on this thing that we call creation, we actually don't know. But what we do know is as soon as mankind was created, he wasn't here long before there were problems. Why? Because God has given us a human will. You can call it a free will if you want, but you can call it your will for sure. You were given a will and it belongs to you. It's volitional as we've already seen. Your voluntary use of that will can either be used for God's purposes or yours. And that dictates who your God is. Your God is either you, essentially, or it's God. Because all people who have a foreign God actually have their primary God as themselves. They're pleasing themselves. It may be evidenced in mammon, money, possessions. It might be Baal. It could be Ra, the sun god. But people who don't worship the true and the living God do have a God. It's just that they are that God. And they then transfer that power to someone or something else. And so in that sense, the cross, Calvary, was not an afterthought to God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit. The Word of God is the Holy Spirit's instrument 
to bring us to the place of understanding that. That's what happens when faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and of righteousness, and we go, I have the wrong God. Right now, I'm kind of worshiping me. And all of a sudden, the light goes on. And we recognize what is good, what is light-filled, and what is not. And now, all of a sudden, we want to walk in the light as he is in the light. Amen? And so, all of a sudden, your priorities change. It's like, ooh, I don't want to be over there. That is not well-lit. We use the term illuminated. In order for something to be illuminated, there needs to be illumination, right? The Holy Spirit and the Word of God are illumination. They illuminate. They cause things to be illuminated, filled with light, so that you can see the difference between good and evil. You can see hazards. You can see where to go and where not to go. And so it brings life in that sense. Because if you continue to walk in darkness, you're lost, right? That's what the Bible says. He who does not believe in me is already condemned, Jesus said. In other words, if you don't make the choice to walk in the light as he is in the light, you've already set your own destiny. Because you're not looking for illumination. You're comfortable in the darkness. That's why Jesus said, men love darkness. The problem wasn't the overwhelming nature of sin. The problem was that men loved darkness. Because inside of them is that, is that evil sin nature that James just talked about. That Jesus talked about. So when you think about these things, that new birth that transitions you into being one who walks in the light brings forth life into your life. Now we think we're already alive because we're walking around. But Ephesians actually declares that we're actually walking dead men. We were once dead in our trespasses and sins, but he has made us alive. And it's the light coming into our lives that makes us alive. We know that by the word. So when Paul authored the book of Ephesians and told us those truths, when we read the book of James, we're we're getting illuminated in our spirits. And it's life to us. It's like, oh, that's what you want. I don't know how many of you do this. Uh, We've got a relatively new puppy. She's only six months old, and every once in a while, she's got to get up in the middle of the night, which means I have to get up in the middle of the night, or Connie has to get up in the middle of the night. Can I tell you, without the lights on, you run into things? It's like you get up, and you think, it's oh, the hallway's over there, and all of a sudden, you miss it by about two feet. In our case, fortunately, we have some rounded corners in our bedroom leading into the hallway, so it's not that painful. But all you know, you, you think you're walking down the hallway, and all of a sudden, boom! What's the secret ingredient? Illumination. You see, I understand I need to walk. I understand Nala needs to go outside. I understand a lot of things, 
But without the light on, there's still some darkness. And I stumbled. You see, that gift of light brings life. The word is a gift that changes everything. And we find out the first thing to get changed for most people is the way we talk. Verse 19, so then. So that's pointing back to what's already been said, to what previously has been established as truth, that the light in your life is going to be transformative, that good things come from God. So then, my beloved brethren, brothers and sisters in Christ, let every man be swift to hear and slow to speak and slow to wrath. If you do not have these verses underlined, highlighted, asterisked in the margins, if there aren't page notations, if you haven't stuck in a permanent sticky there, this is the key to almost every single relationship, including your vertical one with God, to all communication. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God's character or the righteousness of God. Notice the truth that's, that's buried here. When I accept God's truth, when I allow the light to do its job, when the good gift that is the word of God comes into my life and I let it do what it's supposed to do, it illuminates everything, including my mind and all of my ensuing actions. Most of us would, would agree that we have two types of actions that we take. We have involuntary actions. So when you breathe, you do that automatically. You don't think about it. We call that your respiratory cycle. You, you breathe, you inhale, you exhale, all those, they're automatic. When you sneeze, have you ever tried to suppress one of those things? It's an automatic response. You see, there are things in your life that are going to be automatic, but there's a whole plethora of things that are not automatic. They're affected by your will. You have a choice in the matter. There's something you can do, and you can do it one of two ways in a general sense. There's God's way, and there's what we call the wrong way. Those things are found in God's word. And so notice what it says here. If we accept God's word for what it says, then it's going to change our conduct and our conversations by changing our character. It's going to change our character. And nothing right now in our world, to me personally, is more important than being a good listener. Because we have turned into very rapid talkers and very rapid turners to wrath. We get so worked up. In our culture, one of the things that plagues us deeply and probably is the most problematic thing I believe that we deal with in our nation right now, in this country, is we don't listen at all, but we have an answer for everything even though we haven't listened. And then what happens? We get all twisted and tweaked, don't we? You think this verse is true? Be slow 
to speak and quick to listen. And the result is slow to wrath. This is a process. This is something that we all need to learn to do. It's not natural. Remember, we have a sin nature. This is a lesson that we see in the Bible repeatedly. Peter was famous for his instantaneous responses without listening, isn't he? Take the Mount of Transfiguration, the garden, wherever you want to go with Peter's life, and you find that he is not listening. He's acting. He is acting before he thinks, and he hasn't even listened so that he can think correctly. And so this for your marriage. If you want your marriage, you want your communication in your marriage to be good, be good listeners. You want to avoid putting your foot in your mouth? Turn your lips off. You can't get in trouble for what you don't say. You know, too often we end up creating problems by the way we respond because we haven't listened fully. We haven't listened completely. We haven't heard the whole story. I don't know if any of you do this, but I'll just confess before you, I am, I am absolutely still working on being a better listener. Absolutely. A hundred percent. And here's why. I think really quickly. And not to be braggadocious, I think much quicker than most people. That's just the way God made me. My mind works very, very rapidly, and I begin to start thinking I know where you're going, and I have completed about five of your sentences before you've finished one of them. And ask my wife, she'll say, yes, he does this. Honey will say, Amen. So I have thought, I've already thought of the response before I've listened to you complete your sentence sometimes. Now, I will tell you this, I'm a whole bunch better than I used to be. But the fact of the matter is, it all comes from making sure you take up this principle. Being someone who is quick to listen. That means your first response is to listen fully and completely. To hear that person out to let them finish their sentences, to make sure that you haven't missed something. Anybody lived long enough to realize that you heard somebody say something, but you interpreted it in such a way that if you had just listened a while longer, you would have realized what you thought at the beginning of the sentence is not what they concluded with. That's why we're to be quick to listen. There's a reason you have two ears and one mouth. We need to do this much more than we do this. Most of us, actually, I believe, are poor listeners. And from it, much wrath has come. A famous naturalist was walking through a city park, walking with a friend, and he said, did you hear that cricket? And his friend replied, how could I possibly have heard a cricket. I can hear cars, I can hear buses, I can hear people talking, traffic noise. And the naturalist said, you hear what you want to hear. 
He said, let me prove it to you. Took a handful of change out of his pocket and threw it on a sidewalk behind about 10 people. And as the coins hit the sidewalk, all but one of them turned around to see if it was their coins. You hear what you want to hear. You have learned to tune your mind to certain things. We are supposed to learn to tune our mind to the things of God. And that will slow us down in the way that we hear things. All of a sudden you go, wow, now that I know the whole story, I know how to respond to that better. And so he gives us two principles with this regard. Be slow to speak. You see, if you listen completely, you will then have time to be slow in your response. You won't have fully formulated your sentence before the person is done speaking. You will cautiously formulate your sentence after the person is done speaking. Being slow to speak is a gift. Jesus had that gift, amen? He's standing before Pontius Pilate. He's in this courtyard. He's been up all night. He will ultimately be tried six times, all of them illegally. And Pilate asks him a series of questions. And he concludes with, why don't you answer me? Jesus didn't answer a word in his defense. You know why? He didn't need to. There are times when no words are the best words. That your silence actually provides a better answer than your words will. That you not saying something that you'll live long enough to regret is way better than the answer you formulated as you're beginning to get angry or stirred up in your spirit. And so in your communication, if you'll turn your ears on full blast and turn your mouth off full blast and then think about what's been said, you're going to find out you're going to be a little slower to respond. You know what it causes you to do? You don't get to blurt out partial thoughts. You have to actually stop and think about them. You have to consider the words. They then might actually have the possibility of becoming an apple of gold in a setting of silver instead of just something that you formulated in the moment. The second, the larger principle is here, being slow to wrath. And notice why. For the wrath of man doesn't accomplish God's purposes, the righteousness of God. You see, when I'm not quick to listen, when I'm a dull listener, remember Jesus actually confronted the Pharisees often on this, he who has ears, let him hear, right? Why do you think Jesus said that? Because they actually weren't listening. It wasn't that they didn't have ears, he was reminding them, you have ears, you should use them. You should turn on your senses and listen. The reason that Jesus did that, the reason that James states this principle, is that the consequences of you being quick to listen and slow to speak is that you also won't say things that you're going to regret. You, you won't have that wrathful 
as Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart. You see, when you get stirred up in your mind because you've been a poor listener and a quick talker, what happens? You say things that you shouldn't say. And then you usually try and blame somebody for you having said them. You you begin to try and extract them. And words can't be retracted. They absolutely do hurt. The Bible is filled with the admonition that we're to be very careful about losing our temper, becoming angry to the point of wrath. God is the only person in the universe who's capable of righteous wrath. We're terrible at it. We're absolutely awful at at exercising that kind of depth of judgment. And the classic story of this is actually the story of Moses. If you remember, when the children of Israel first went into the wilderness of, of sin, they began to wander around. They had all kinds of issues, and God you know, instructs them to build the tabernacle and all these things. But before that happens, they're out of water. And so God actually tells them through Moses, he says, Moses, I want you to strike the rock. And water comes pouring out. But they wander for 40 years, and Moses comes back to Kadesh Barnea, And God says, Moses, you don't need to strike the rock. Just speak to it. What did Moses do? He struck the rock again. It didn't need to be struck. His anger was going to accomplish nothing. God wasn't mad at the people. Moses was mad at the people. Moses was angry. And for that, Moses, like everyone else, died in the wilderness. He never entered the promised land. So it's a bad thing to misrepresent God's character, his nature, and his love by being angry. We're to be people who love like God loves. The deepest expression that we can have is not our screaming and yelling yelling and arguing and carrying banners and holding signs up that have some insane statement on them. Those things generally accomplish absolutely nothing. They just show that you're angry. And the wrath of man doesn't do anything for God's kingdom. The word of God will also change your walk. And therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word. Again, there's the focus. It's the word that does this. As the word comes alive in your life, The word's going to cause you to be a good listener. The word's going to cause you to be slow to speak. The word's going to cause you to be slow to reach that point of of being filled with with wrath of any kind. But it will also stop you from being vulgar, from being filthy. It's going to change the way you think, wickedness. And receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your soul. And then another famous verse, verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. You see, the word of God does no one any good if you just hear it. 
You can hear truth all day long, all night long, every moment of every day, but if you don't do anything with it, you might as well have never heard it. The person who loves the good God, who gives good gifts, is a doer of the things that God says. And so he goes through a number of things, gifts that, this gift that the word is tells us what we ought to reject. Think on these things for a second. He's basically saying these are the things you shouldn't be. These are the things that you should get rid of. It's the same concept that Paul taught us in Colossians 3. We're to put off the old man with all of his deeds and put on the new man. In other words, there's things you have to get rid of. There's things you've got to reject. You've got to dump the trash can. You've got to get rid of it. Lay it aside. Get rid of the garbage. Take out the trash. Our old nature, the things that the devil, the wiles of the devil would place into your heart and your mind. The remnant of you, the flesh that's still in you, for it, it's still alive. Probably most of you have experienced that. You may have done so today. You might have done it in the last 15 minutes. Something darted through your mind that isn't supposed to be there, and you know that that flesh is very much alive. You have to put that off. You've got to kill it. That's up to you. God will help you with it, but it has to be volitional. The Word tells us to do that. The gift that is the Word tells us what we ought to receive. The Word of God is the last word on everything. Think about it in that sense. When God says in his Word anything about the way we're supposed to live, that's his opinion on it. It's actually not negotiable. And we live in a, in a world that wants to negotiate everything. It's like, well, you know, I don't know if I believe that. Well, you don't get to do that with God. You don't wake up in the morning, it's like you take out your Bible. This whole James thing on speech, not doing that. You understand what I'm saying? You can't take out the parts you don't like. Just because you don't like them. Just because you think they should say something they don't say. We're to be doers. Not just hearers, it's there. When you read it, you're hearing it. When somebody says it to you, you're hearing it. When God by his spirit confirms it in your heart, you're hearing it. You're supposed to be a doer of what you hear. And a lot of people are hearers only, which is where James is going to go. It's like, well, I heard it, but I just don't really want to do it right now. So, Laying aside those things, get rid of those things. In other words, what we should reject, what we should receive. Notice what we should resolve in our heart to do. To be a doer. You know, when the Bible says that we are to love one another, you know he actually means that? And you know what his definition of that love was? as I have loved you. That actually the entire world will know in fact that we are his disciples if we have full political agreement. doesn't say that, does it? It says the whole world will know you are my disciples if you have love one for another. 
You can have your political disagreements. Those things are meaningless in heaven. Let me just say this again. Political arguments and disagreements are completely meaningless in heaven. You know why? Because it isn't going to be the United States of America. It's going to be the United Kingdom of Jesus. Amen? So this is important, church, because these things solve a lot of our problems if we actually live them. If I'm a doer of the word and I actually love people as Christ has loved me, if I prefer my brother, if I bear with the weak, if I do all these things, if I'm a doer of the word, some of these dumb things that we haggle over go away. Matter of fact, would I dare say all of them will go away? All the things that tear the church apart, tear families apart, tear husbands and wives apart, all the junk that is sin, the things that we must reject and the things we must receive, the things that we will then resolve come from us being doers of the word. When I'm a doer of the word, my life changes. It changes. Changes everything, in fact. But we, as Jesus said, being evil, have to make that choice ourselves. I have to say, yes, Lord, I'm going to reject that. Yes, Lord, I want to receive that. Yes, Lord, let me resolve that. And so that the word becomes that gift that it's supposed to be, and it will call for you to respond. It's not just nice suggestions. The Bible isn't nice suggestions. It's not a philosophy. It's truth. Philosophy is not inherently truth. It might contain some truth. It may even contain some things that are actually good in a human sense. But philosophical leanings are not inherently truth. Truth is truth. And truth cannot be contended with. It can't be competed with. There is no such thing as competing truths where both things are true. One is true. If they fight against each other, there can be only one truth. Otherwise, neither of them are necessarily truth. If there are two things and they fight against each other, only one of them can be true. That, by the way, is a basic principle of logic and reason. And so when the Bible declares that it is truth and it is God's word, what we hear is not just nice suggestions. They're intended to be things that we do. Things that we are. Ways that we live. The church is so important for our lives in this world because one of the things that non-Christians often say is they say it, but they don't do it. They tell me to do it, but they don't do it. They say they believe it, but they don't do it. It stains our witness. It's one of the reasons that there's so much division in the church right now. And I don't mean in this church. I mean the church, the big one. The church of Jesus Christ in the world, which is every single believer that exists on the planet. The reason there's so much division 
is we're not being doers of the word. We're making up our own little narrative about how we think it ought to go. And so that conflict is viewed by people who desperately need Jesus is Jesus must be lying to us. Because look at what his people are doing. It should change the way we live our lives. And when we do those things, we are forever changed. It's not just something that you know, comes to us for a moment. What God said, God means. It's up to us to do it. Jesus is the maximum example of this. In Matthew chapter 7, as he draws to close the Sermon on the Mount, he says, therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, exact same principle, Matthew 7, verses 24 through 27, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock, and the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, and they beat on that house, And they did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. And then he contrasts it. And everyone that hears these sayings of mine and does not do them shall be likened unto a foolish man that built his house upon the sand. And the rains descended, the floods came, and the wind blew and beat upon that house, and great was its fall. Same exact principle from the mouth of Jesus. Being a doer. Some people read the Bible because it's magnificent literature. Some people read it for history. Some people read it for philosophy. Some people read it for science. Some people read it for psychology. Some people have a lifelong study of it because they're looking for faults in it. There's all kinds of reasons. Some people just study it devotionally because it might have some good things for them. But the fact of the matter is, exactly what James says next, it's actually a mirror to your soul. It actually helps discern the real you. The gift of the word actually looks past all the junk that you put on the outside. All this stuff. Are any of you kind of intrigued when you see, you know, Hollywood people that you know are like, well, they're well past their prime. And you see them without all the makeup on. You're like, mm, that's not looking so good. And I'm not trying to pick on them because we all kind of sort of do that. But they're really good at it. They try and paint themselves as if they were, you know, 20 or 30 years younger. And they put on young clothes and young makeup. And they're trying to stay young so that, you know, somehow, you know, that aging process didn't take hold of them. And then you you look and you, you see that on the back they have these clamps that hold their skin together. So that their face is like stretched tight. And you're like, that doesn't look right. You're really actually old. There's extra eyelids in there. You just kind of temporarily stretch them out. You know, it's like all the rest of us. I got crow's feet and lizard's feet. I got lots of feet on my face. The word of God does that to your soul. 
You see, if that person in the morning can go look in the mirror and go, oh, I'm 37, when they're really 82, guess what they're doing? They are doing exactly what the Bible says. They're deceiving themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who observes his natural face in the mirror, for he observes himself and goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. You see, the word of God does that to your soul. And so as your soul is exposed to the word, it actually allows you to reflect on who you really are. And so as you gaze into the word, the real you is exposed. And this actually goes back to the tabernacle and the temple. Because once you entered the temple confines, the, what was called the, the outer court, and you walked past the brazen altar and you offered your sacrifice, you didn't take two or three steps before you were dirty again. You had blood on your hands. That has to come off. The blood of animals is unclean. So you've sacrificed an animal, you've made the proper offering, but you're still dirty. So where did they go? They went to this bronze laver, which was a bronze basin, which was made out of the actual bronze mirrors that were donated by the Jewish women for the purpose of making this bronze basin that was polished on the inside, filled with water. So when you put your hands in it, guess who you saw? You. Like the man, the the person who hears but doesn't do, is like the man, is like the woman who goes to that basin seeking to be cleansed, that puts their hands in and gets the dirt off their hands, but looks in the mirror and forgets that there's still more there. Because it's not just the hands, it's the head, isn't it? It's also the heart. And so that bronze basin, when you stared into it, you got a view of yourself. The Word of God now does that to us. It's a mirror. Jesus in his parables actually told them, he said, look, you you guys have to do what I say. And that mirror of you looking into God's Word will determine whether you actually did what Jesus said. That certain man who had two sons there in Matthew 21, verses 28 to 31, he said, come to the first son, go to work in the vineyard. And he answered and said, I will not. But afterwards he repented and went, and the second came and did likewise. And the third, and he said, which of the two did the will of his father? And they said to him, the first. You see, the one that repented later actually didn't, in his heart, want to do it. He just did it because he wasn't going to get paid. The Word of God looks into the soul and says, Jeff, why are you doing that? It's no different than us waking up in the morning and you, you go to the bathroom mirror and there's you. Now, you can say that isn't you. You can say you don't need to shave. Don't need to brush your teeth. You don't need to do your hair. In my case, it doesn't take long. You can say that, you know, there's nothing, there's no there there. I look good. But the moment I step through the door of the church, people go, Did you sleep in a street corner last night? What happened to you? <laughs> What's going on here? 
Well, I looked in the mirror. I just didn't do anything with it. I said, nope, I look great. But the truth is, I didn't. I didn't look great. I looked like I always look in the morning. It's like, ooh, that needs some work. Gaze into God's word often because it will reveal things that need to be removed. It's going to tell you things that got to come off, got to come out, need to go. The good news is it's also going to reveal that which is good. You know, every once in a while, it's like you, you look and you go, oh, well, I, I don't need to you know, put on the, that much wrinkle cream this time. You know, you put that stuff there in the corner of your eyes. You know, that, that doesn't look too bad. You're okay there. And finally, to wrap this up, the word is a gift that changes our total experience, our life's experiences. But he who looks in the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, you see, the law of liberty is the, the moral law loosed by grace. Because moral law hasn't changed, but how we respond to it is now by grace through faith. And when I look to that law, it's now doable. Under the Jewish law and under the ceremonies, under the religious laws, the religious rules, it was impossible. But because I'm now liberated by grace through faith, God's mercy is upon me, that law that is now liberated in me allows me to live by the power of the Holy Spirit a life that's pleasing to God. I continue in that. It's not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. And this one is blessed in what he does or she does. And if anyone among you thinks he's religious but does not bridle his tongue, and we've got a bunch more on that coming, so hold on to your horses. Literally, a bridle for a horse and for a tongue but deceives his own heart. This one's, check this out. Have you met that person? Their lips move so fast they don't realize that what they're saying is absolutely useless to God's kingdom. That person's religion is useless. The pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans, widows in their trouble, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. So when I look into the word, it's going to cause me to do something with what I see. It might be to strengthen the good things. It may be to remove something that needs to go. It may mean that I need to go through a much longer morning routine. You know, every once in a while you sleep on that one side of your head. It's like your hair is like going the other way. I know none of you ever have this, but you know those of us without much hair, and you should not be mocking me right now. Remember, the gray hairs of an old man are righteousness. But you know, you wake up and your hair's going the wrong way. You take a shower, it's still going the wrong way. You, you put mousse on, it's still going the wrong way. You get out the blow dryer and you try and blow it the other way, and the, the blow dryer fries. Sometimes you have to spend more time cleaning up the problem, don't you? And the same is true for our lives spiritually. There are some things that take prayer and fasting. 
There are some things that you really have to work at. There are things that are so deeply ingrained. You've laid on that part of your life for so long, it's going to take you a while to see that problem resolved. But the word calls us to to live righteously. When, When I look, I should do. But when I find, I should look to the reason why. You see, a life of godlessness, a life of lawlessness, a life without Christ, ultimately leaves us very, very damaged for the kingdom. Oh, you might get in as if by fire, but you're not going to accomplish much for the king. Because the king's not going to point anyone to your life because it's so messed up. You yourself might get in, but you're not going to help anybody else get there is the point. And so life without the, the word in it, a life without truth being shown into your life so that you can see what needs to change, is oftentimes not going to be very useful to the king. Some of you may know this, but there was a sequel to the novel The Mutiny on the Bounty and the Authors Charles Nordoff and James Norman Hall recount this settlement that's on Pitcairn Island. And, and originally, as they were mutinied and, and they're stranded there, they're, they're left there, it, they descend into chaos rather quickly. Why? Because there was no law. There was nothing for them to refer to. There was, there was literally, no, it was completely lawless. And so everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And as the story continues onward, what ultimately happens is someone finds a Bible. And they actually begin to look at it and they begin to live that way. It was so bad that the women on the island actually built a fort to keep the men out. But what happened once the word of God got out? People's lives began to change. They stopped doing what they were doing. They realized that they were going to die in that sin. And it wasn't going to go good from there on out. Where there had been mass murder, where there had been war, where semen went mad, where most everybody on the island were drunks, out of, out of that chaos ascended a new generation. And that new generation walked with the Lord and became useful to the king and for the kingdom. And in the same way, we're called to live righteously. We're called to live unselfishly. The way we give ourselves the cause of the king and the kingdom. And we're called to be unstained by this world. Look, let's face it, that's hard. There's never been a more staining world than the one that we live in right now. You can be stained in so many ways in our world right now. It can come to you on your phone. It can come to you on billboards. It can come to you through your TV and entertainment and Virtually every part of this world is now so deeply dunked in filth, it's hard to stay unspotted from this world. But it's not impossible. Not with the help of the king. 
not with the mirror of the word shining on your heart, because God's going to show you, no, you need to stay away from that. You need to turn your eyes. You need to avert your gaze from that. God's able. And through him, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. Amen? And so what we've been called to do, being righteous, being unselfish and giving, being unstained, we can actually do because God gives it to us as a gift. He gives it to us in the word first so that we can slowly take those things in as we hear. And then we're not quick to speak, we're slow to speak. We don't verge off into some type of wrathful living. We can keep ourselves clean, unstained. And when we get accidentally in the mud of this life, the good news is if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive it and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen? That's a promise, by the way. That's not something God might do. That's something God will do. If you ask, he does. That's, that's up to him. And in that sense, God's word is truly a gift to us. It's a mirror to our souls. It'll change our lives. It'll change our speech. It'll change the way we view the world. It'll change the way we view ourselves if we let it do that. I'm going to invite some of the pastors to come up. Maybe you've got something tonight you need to pray for before you leave. We'll have them available. Let's stand and pray together and ask God to put all this stuff deep in our hearts where it will be useful from here on out. Amen. Father, we thank you that every good and every perfect gift comes down from you, our Father of lights who's in heaven and in whom there is no shadow of turning. You're always the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Lord, we know that you brought us forth by the word of truth, and we thank you for that. And so we invite you to help us to be doers of the word and not hearers only, to never go to the mirror and look and forget what type of people we really are. And so, Lord, when we see our souls reflected in your word, we pray that it would be good. We pray that it would be the illumination of your word alive in this world, uh, in us. And so when we find those spots that need a little cleaning, maybe some smudge in our life, some unspotted thing that you really want to just take and really clean it up, we pray that we'd submit to that cleansing by the washing of the water of the Spirit and your word. Lord, transform us and mold us and shape us. Help us to be quick to listen, slow to speak, to never get angry, Lord, without righteousness in the mix. We bless you. We thank you. We praise you. Transform us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.